Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 18, and could be found on page 14 of the Bibles in the Seats. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Felicity. Please do keep that uh, passage open in front of you. Um, everything we're going to be looking at, well, most of what we're going to be looking at uh, this evening is going to be on pages 14 and 15 of the Church Bible. It's going to be looking at Genesis chapter 13 and 14 as well. But uh, as we, before we look at that, let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that for your help tonight in hearing you clearly through your words. And we pray that we would respond to what we hear uh, with faith Uh, with a faith like Abraham's, a lively faith that is to your glory and very much focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask for your help with that in his precious name. Amen. Uh, Now I wonder, how many choices do we make every day? Uh, Social scientists uh, like answering questions like that and they have a hard time coming up with sensible answers. Some rather wild estimates run into the thousands, thousands of choices that we make every day. 
Uh, One more sober study recently suggested perhaps about 70 choices, something like that. 70 choices involving some kind of conscious deliberation and thought every day. Now, that's still quite a lot, isn't it? Uh, Especially for those people we know, uh, for whom every decision becomes some sort of existential crisis. Um, You know the sort of people I mean. You ask ask them uh, whether they want tea or coffee. And they don't know, and it raises a crisis. Do I want tea? Do I want coffee, tea, coffee? Am I a tea person today, coffee person today? Am I a tea person who perhaps wants coffee today? What in the end is the meaning of tea and the wanting tea? But by then, of course, you've given up, walked away, and they get nothing. Uh, But even if we're slightly better or quicker at making choices uh, than that, the bad news is, It turns out we're not very good at it. Study after study suggests that we're muddled, we're inconsistent, uh, we're easily manipulated. It's a problem for everyone. Uh, But it's especially a problem from a Christian point of view. If you were here last week, you might remember we were seeing that Christian faith is expected to be lively. Uh, By that I mean that if we truly believe the claims of Christianity, then it will show And it will start to show in the choices that we make. So this is a genuinely practical problem for us. And I can think of a number of people uh, I know just at the moment facing substantial and complicated decisions about where they're going to live, what they're going to do, that kind of thing in the future. Uh, And I certainly know how difficult and overwhelming those kind of big choices in life can feel. And I also know of many people who are struggling with the smaller sort of everyday decisions in life, the the constant noise around us pressing us to do this or that. Uh, There are moments with those kind of choices, there are moments when our instincts kick in and perhaps bring us to make choices we quickly regret. Uh, We all struggle with this one way or another. But as we began to see afresh last week, it may well be that uh, there are good answers to these kind of big issues in life in unexpected places. And last week we started engaging, started a new series engaging with the biblical book of Genesis, a text which is thousands of years old, uh, but a book, as we'll see, we've begun to see already and we'll see again tonight with some really compelling answers to some of the big questions of life. And we're focusing down on the part of Genesis dealing with the life of Abraham, or Abram, as he's called at the start. And what what we said last week was one of the the most significant turning points in the history of the world. The point at which the God who made the cosmos, who made the world, stepped in to deal with the mess that we've made of it. And promised to turn everything around. Uh, beginning with this one man, Abraham. If you flick back a page uh, uh, to the beginning of chapter 12, for example, uh, you'll see some of those promises. Just let me remind you of some of that. For example, verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So he's starting with one man, but it's going to grow into a great nation. Or look, and look at where it goes, end of verse 3. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's going to start with one person, but somehow this blessing is going to spread throughout the world. And this world, which is troubled and broken and seems like it's under a curse of some sort, is going to be blessed and filled with blessing once again. That's the promise. 
However, this is, we're going to learn from Abraham, the man of faith, how we can trust and benefit from those promises through faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm hoping that tonight, as we read on into chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis, we're going to learn how faith leads to making choices. Uh, These chapters are going to show us two major examples of choices being made. Uh, the first is going to, from chapter 13, is going to emphasize the choice by, made by Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, and the second is going to focus a little bit more on the choice made by Abraham himself. We'll come to that later. And I'm going to suggest that these two chapters may well be taking us back well over 3,000 years, but I think they'll, we'll see that they connect very well with our experience. Uh, let's see how this works first in chapter 13. What's the, the big idea here? Well, in our search for blessing and the good life, the lesson here is, however things may look, choose the blessing promised by God. This is Genesis chapter 13. Choose the blessing promised by God. Not the one that looks good, but is compromised. Compromised by wickedness. Chapter 13 shows us two practical responses to God's promise. When given the choice, Abraham's nephew, Lot, moves to the edge of the land of promise, to a region compromised by wickedness. Uh, Lot's future looks ominous. On the other hand, Abraham stays firmly in the land of promise, and God shows his approval uh, by repeating the promise to him. Basically, it's thumbs down for Lot and thumbs up for Abraham. That's the basic idea in this chapter. Now, the story goes like this. Uh, Lots and Abraham are back in the land of promise uh, after the rather unfortunate adventure in Egypt at the end of chapter 12. Uh, But the land at this time is a bit crowded. And verse 7, quarreling arose between Abraham's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. So Abraham, verse 9, suggests that while staying in the land, they separate. They go different ways. And he gives Lot a very generous offer. He lets Lot choose. He says, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Very generous offer, letting Lot choose first. And uh, we need to make it clear that they both could have stayed in the land that they've been promised, just in different parts of it. I imagine that was Abraham's idea. But Lot has someone else in mind, A place that, if not outside the land, is really right at the very edge of it. This is verse 10. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. But look at the ominous signals here. Uh, This plain that he's looking at that looks very attractive to him, it includes the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the writer reminds us, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to hear about that later um, in this series. There's something deeply offensive to God going on in these places. And Lot chooses to live near or in Sodom, despite the fact that verse uh, verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Plenty of clues here suggesting it's very much thumbs down for Lot. But Abraham settles in Canaan. 
the land of promise. He's content to live like a stranger in a foreign country, a nomadic life in isolation. It seems on the surface a strange choice to make, but the New Testament book of Hebrews uses this, uses this as one of the great examples of what faith really looks like. Abraham does what he does because his focus is not on the scene immediately in front of his eyes. His thoughts, his sight are on the future blessing God has promised. A better country, if you like. And here in Genesis 13, you can see that God's approval of his faith comes right away. Uh, Verse 15, for example. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth. We're saying last last week, whenever Abraham does something good, the Lord speaks and confirms uh, what he's doing. Thumbs up for Abraham. But when it comes to the actual choice in the chapter, most of the focus here is on Lot. So I want to, I'd like to invite you to join me to look again at verses 10 through to 13, where Lot's decision is described. And let me ask you, what would you do in this situation? What would you do? Now, think about it from Lot's perspective. Uh, where he's standing, it looks like You know, it's a very overcrowded land. His herdsmen are squabbling with the neighbors. And he's saying, if only there were a little more space. Uh, If only it were a little less dry. And, verse 10, he lifts his eyes to see the verdant Jordan Valley. And it looks like paradise. Flowing with water like the garden of the Lord. It's a place that looks like, uh, you know, concentrated blessing. You know, he's saying, I know it's right to be, I, I, I know it's right on the edge of God, where God wants me to be, he says. But, you know, it's close. I could visit. And yes, I know it's full of wicked people, great sinners against the Lord, he says, but I can handle that. And who knows, perhaps they'll be converted. I wonder, what would you do? Our choices may not be quite the same of lots, of course, but sometimes they do involve something very similar. They do involve deciding where we're going to live. So, for example, suppose you're 17 or 18, wondering about where and whether to go away to university. How should you go about choosing where to go? Is it, in the end, all about the courses, the, uh, the campus, the social life, the facilities, the accommodation, the distance from home? Is it all about those kinds of things? And then only after that, perhaps even only when you get there, will you start looking around uh, for a good church to be a part of. On the other hand, are you more aware of the dangers and opportunities at this very important transitional time of your life? that you need support and good teaching to get you through. By good teaching, I mean good Bible teachings we're hearing earlier. That's what we need, which unfortunately is as rare as a dodo in many parts of the country. Can you see that it would be very good, be great, in fact, to find a university where you can grow in service and mission and develop good patterns of ministry for the, that's going to last a lifetime? It's similar, I think, for students in their final year uh, looking for work. I sometimes get messages from people asking about good churches in different places. Uh, I once got one uh, saying, it was a sort of very general message, saying, I'm moving to Copenhagen. Does anyone know a good church? 
I have to say that uh, message made my heart sink. I have no idea whether there are good churches in Copenhagen. I hope there are. I hope they found one. The problem is they didn't know whether there was a good church there either. They'd made that decision without even thinking about it. And of course, later in life, we can make the same kinds of mistake. We look around at where we're living and, and, and say, you know, if only there was a little bit more space. And we lift up our eyes and we see, oh, I don't know, some lovely country town we visited once, perhaps. The houses are big, the schools are good. You know, we have no idea whether there's a lively Christian community there where we can serve and press on with others to seek God's blessing. We don't care. To us at that moment, it just looks like paradise. It just looks great. But wouldn't it be better to think first, where can I persevere? Where can I grow? Where can I best engage with ministry and and mission? and, And then ask, what can I do? Where can I live to make this happen? The same principles, I think, apply beyond the question of where to live. Our our tendency in many areas of our lives is to be like, very much like Lot here, try to sort out the the practical areas of our lives on our own terms, according to our own rather limited judgment, and then hope that everything else is going to fall in place. Uh, In other words, there's an order, a wrong order about the way we go about things. We start by fixing certain things according to our, our own non-negotiable terms. You know, I'm going to do this job uh, with this partner and my kids are going to go to the, these schools. That's definite. And only then do we say, okay, okay, God, let's talk. Let's talk about the rest of it. Given all these things, how can I serve? But you'll notice here, you'll notice here, Abraham's example is exactly the other way around. Uh, with faith in the promises at the center of things, and then the practicalities of life falling around it. Okay, Rather than the practicalities coming first, then the Christian things coming after, it's the faith first, the promises first, and then letting the practicalities fall into place. It's also the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Seek first the kingdom, says the Lord Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. That is, have as your guiding focus in life the place in the future where all God's promised blessings will come to reality. Seek first the kingdom. Line yourselves up with that, with him, with his promises. And trust that he, your heavenly father, will lovingly ensure that all the practicalities will fall into place just as they need to. But I think if we want some further examples of faith at work like this, we would do well to read on and take a quick look at chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. Um, The focus is now uh, moved slightly. It's on a choice that Abraham has to make. And the choice is not about where to live this time, but between two alternative kings to align himself with. And this time, the overall encouragement is for us to choose to honor the right king. Genesis chapter 14, choose to honor the right king. That is, choose to listen to and honor the priestly king who speaks for God and confirms his blessing and victory rather than a wicked king offering false promises. 
Now, we haven't read chapter 14, uh, partly because I wanted to spare Felicite having to read that long list of local kings and nations that we get in the first 12 verses. But if you scan down those very quickly in your Bibles, uh, you'll pick up the kind of new setting that we're dealing with here. We're moving on to the, a bit more of an international stage here, the world stage here. And on this world stage, God makes Abraham a blessing for others, a blessing for the nations. We'll see in a moment, God grants him a spectacular victory against the invading armies of the east. Now, the war that sets this all off is described in some detail in the first uh, 12 verses here. But basically, let me summarize, it's the eastern kings led by Chedlaramir versus the western kings. The eastern kings win the first battle, then they win their second battle. They look invincible. After the second battle, they steal away with people and possessions, including Lot, verse 12, whose decision to live in Sodom now looks very foolish. It had looked good, but now it looks very foolish. Poor Lot, he lifted up his eyes to see a land like paradise. Now you're seeing what he got for not trusting, not a lot. But then Abraham steps in to save the day. Verse 14, when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went into pursuit as far as Dan. This is brilliant. It's like, uh, say, Luxembourg taking on the might of the Nazi army in the Second World War and somehow winning. And it's rather like a war film here, as verse 15, we're right with Abraham, dividing his forces against the enemy at night, chasing them into the distance, Uh, Against an enemy that looked invincible, God blesses Abraham with a spectacular victory. That's Genesis chapter 14. This is good, yes? This is much better than Abraham's last international adventure, the one he had back down in Egypt in chapter 12. Um, He was a bit of a menace when he went to Egypt, but this time he's being a blessing to others. This time he's trusted the Lord. The Lord has promised to protect him, and he's trusted that. And he's gone out and he's done something risky and bold and he's brought a victorious blessing to the tribes and nations around him. It's a tiny picture of the much bigger blessing the Lord has promised to bring the whole world to the whole world. Okay? So we can think about those blessings in, in chapter twelve. There's a little picture of that actually happening, and Abraham at the heart of it. But Abraham's biggest challenge comes actually at the end of all this as he returns from victory. Uh, down in verse 17. Okay. Now remember from the last chapter that unlike his nephew Lot, Abraham has been careful to distance himself from the wickedness of Sodom. But now it seems a meeting with the king of Sodom seems unavoidable. After Abraham returned from defeating uh, Kedlaramea and uh, the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him. Uh, you know how it is. There's someone you really don't get on with. Perhaps you've had uh, one or two clashes with in the past, but then you meet them unexpectedly at some event and they catch your eye and your heart sinks. You know, an encounter is unavoidable. But then you notice know, something very remarkable happens here. The Lord intervenes and provides a different king for Abraham to engage with. Quite out of the blue. It's very remarkable. This is verse 18. Melchizedek, king and priest of God most high. He comes right out of the blue from nowhere it seems. 
to declare the good news of victory. Verses 19 and 20. This is what he says. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into, his, into your hand. Abraham is very struck by this. He recognizes someone speaking on behalf of God, speaking the blessing and promises of God to him, someone greater than himself. And before he meets the king of Sodom, he aligns himself instead with this king. He honors him with a tithe, a tenth of the victory spoils from his, from his uh, military escapade. End of verse 20. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Okay then, now comes the test. And uh, we can just picture the king of Sodom sidling up to Abraham, hoping to strike a deal. Hoping perhaps to put Abraham in his debt. So he can say, that Abraham, you know, he's one of mine. He's one of mine. So he sidles up and he says to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. He's like a sort of classic pantomime villain but Abraham is by this stage ready to face him he knows that the people he's rescued include his own relatives who belong to the Lord and he's just been reminded by Melchizedek that blessing and victory are from the Lord not elsewhere and so he's able to give the stirring and robust response uh, that we see in verses 22 and 23 these are are marvellous verses I think But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Okay then, is this helpful for us? Absolutely, I think it is. Uh, the offer here, made here by the king of Sodom represents the very, very many dodgy deals coming our way all the time from the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are offers that superficially look quite good but turn out to be empty and indeed dangerous in the end. They'll often lead to ruin and destruction. The king of Sodom offers Abraham material goods So an obvious parallel for us would be money and wealth. These seem like powerful sources of blessing. Uh, But of course, that's a lie. Uh, They turn out to be defenseless in the end against our greatest enemy, which is death. Okay, that's one possible parallel. We also need to remember, though, the association of Sodom with sexual immorality. We find out more about that later in the story. And uh, we'll all be in, always be instinctively vulnerable to, to both these things, both the deceptive charms of money as a, as a false source of blessing and security and the deceptive charms of sex used wrongly. Okay, so there are many parallels in our, in our lives. Uh, but Abraham's allegiance to the king of Salem here uh, represents the seeds of an effective response to those kind of dodgy deals. What should this look like for us? Well, it turns out that the king of Salem began, begins a very remarkable storyline in the Bible. Hundreds of years after this, uh, he is remembered by another king, uh, a king in Jerusalem, probably the same place as Salem, 
Um, this is King David. And in Psalm 110, King David, just like Abraham, recognizes his need to look for a king, a lord, greater than himself. One who can confirm and bring about blessing and victory for God's people. David calls this king a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And a thousand years after that, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews confirms that the source of eternal blessing and victory is indeed Jesus, designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So see how it works. Uh, Abraham's protection against wickedness comes from aligning himself with the king of Salem, with Melchizedek. Uh, The blessing confirmed by Melchizedek far exceeds anything the king of Sodom might offer. That helps Abraham as he stands up to the king of Sodom. And similarly for us, our protection comes from aligning ourselves also with a king, with Jesus, the true king of all the earth, a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the blessings that we have in him, the victory that we have in him, the blessed future we have guaranteed in him, the victory he's going to bring about, guaranteed by him, will far, far exceed any other offer. I really do mean any other offer. They're incomparable. Incomparable. So I wonder how many uh, choices you have made already today. I wonder how many of you have yet to make before you go to sleep tonight. could be quite a few. Who knows? Some of them might prove to be quite significant. Some of us, as I was saying earlier, may be facing huge, potentially life-changing choices over the next weeks or months. All of us will be facing choices every day when it comes to godliness, struggling with our first instincts in those situations, these choices can some, all of these choices can sometimes seem simply impossible to deal with. But here in this ancient, neglected, marvelous text are some compelling principles for, for us to put into practice. First, remember from Genesis 13, focus on the blessing God has promised. And then trust that he can make sure all the practicalities will fall into place. And then second, from Genesis 14, begin as the central thing with your allegiance to the true king. Find your king in the Lord Jesus. Find your identity following him and him alone in the face of temptation. Again, focus on the promise and the future that he has promised, confirmed and guaranteed as our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And uh, then we can join in with words uh, rather like those amazing words of Abraham's. I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we remember that the words of the Lord Jesus seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. We pray very much that that would indeed be the principle governing our lives.
uh, to focus on your promises and trust you, trust your kindness and love for us, that in your sovereignty you can bring about uh, the, right situ- the right outcomes and all the practicalities can fall into place. And as we align ourselves with your kingdom and with the Lord Jesus, we pray that we would indeed have the strength to resist wickedness just as Abraham did. And we ask for your help in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.